Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Islam for Christians, episode 71, Islamic History, circa 610 to 622, Selected Stories from Pre-Islamic Mecca, part two. So, Islamic History is back. This is part two of the historical notebook, or if you prefer to call it uh, miscellaneous history from before the Hijra. That's 622 when the Muslims went to Medina. Now, in the previous episode, I promised you a wrestling match featuring Muhammad, so let me get into that. I call this one, Muhammad Wrestles Mecca's Strongest Man, and he moves a tree. One day, a man named Rukana, who was the strongest man in Mecca, saw Muhammad. And Muhammad called to him saying, why won't you accept God and become a Muslim? Rukana said, because I don't think what you're saying is true. Muhammad replied, well, will you believe that I am telling the truth if I throw you? <laughs> Meaning in a wrestling match. So the strong man naturally agreed to this and the two wrestled. And Muhammad actually threw him twice. Now, I'm assuming this is more of a throw like in judo, if you can imagine it that way. You know, not picking someone up and tossing them, but, you know, someone's coming towards you. You kind of use their momentum and kind of toss them on their way. Now, that's impressive, but that wasn't all. Muhammad then said he could call a tree and have it come over to them, to him, you know, to wherever they were. So he did. And the tree moved to where Muhammad was standing. And then he told it to go back, and it went back. Now, if this seems a little over the top and fantastical, it might be. You know, judge this one for yourself. It's one of those stories that comes from the early histories, but probably few Muslims today have even heard because it just didn't really make the cut. <laughs> you know, uh, for future historians. So again, judge this one for yourself. It, it sounds outlandish and almost certainly untrue, even in the Muslim sense, because the general idea is that Muhammad performed only one miracle during his ministry, that miracle being the Quran itself. But what makes this a bit more intriguing is the source. This story comes from the Ibn Ishaq collection of oral histories. Now, ordinarily, these are generally pretty sound things, although some of them are less than believable. And usually, when it sounds unbelievable, he tends to omit the source, so you don't know where it came from. But with his wrestling story, that's actually not the case. You know, there's a twist with this one. <laughs> the source in this story, you know, that Ibn Ishaq is telling, the source is his father. So was his father exaggerating? Perhaps, but I think you have to <laughs> just appreciate the situation Ibn Ishaq was in here because, you know, if your father knew you were compiling an oral history and he told you a story that good, is there any chance you would leave it out?
Okay, here's another story from the early histories that most people probably haven't heard. And I call this one, Gabriel Goes on a Killing Spree. And there were five key men in Mecca who had been mocking and insulting Muhammad. And they had done it so much so that God sent down a revelation regarding them. This is the Quran, Surah 15, verses 94 to 96. So proclaim what you have been commanded and turn away from the polytheists. Surely we will be sufficient for you against the mockers who set up other gods with Allah. They will soon come to know. Now that's pretty standard stuff, Quranically speaking. You know, that's not something that jumps out of the page and makes you think, whoa, that's different. However, the tradition that follows this is much more unusual. And this comes from an unknown source, but it became a traditional story at some point. So Gabriel, this is happening, Gabriel stood next to Muhammad. Now, apparently, they were at the Kaaba, and these people were going around it. You know, it was a big religious thing to just circle the Kaaba a certain amount of times. The, the pagans really love that, uh, and Muslims actually do it now, today. So, Gabriel threw a green leaf in the face of Mocker number one. Now, remember, there's five of them in this story, okay? Now, this leaf thrown at Mocker number one it blinded him. And then Gabriel pointed the stomach, pointed at the stomach of the second mocker, mocker number two. And his stomach swelled until that man died. Gabriel then went to mocker number three, and he opened up an old wound on this person, killing him. The fourth mocker had a much more elaborate execution. This is all of the Kaaba, mind you. Gabriel pointed to the man's foot causing him to mount a donkey. The donkey was then tied. He was tied to a tree with thorns, and then a thorn pierced mocker number four, and he died. Then Gabriel pointed to the head of mocker number five, and his head filled with pus, and he died. Now, this doesn't sound like something that would be in, you know, sort of the semi-official Islamic history. You are correct. This is a mostly apocryphal story, and it's generally treated as such by Muslims. Now, a, a display of power like this, what Gabriel did, you know, it wouldn't have been buried in a short apocryphal story if... Indeed, the original companions or anyone significant had actually seen this. It would be a much, much bigger deal, you know, but it's not. Again, I don't know how many Muslims have even heard this story, and that should tell you something. It also has all the signs of a creative person reading from the Quran and inventing a fanciful story to go with it, and that's why it's in my notebook episode, because you know, it's not a prominent story, but it's fun. You know, it, because if this was actually a for real story and part of Islamic theology, it would be an episode in itself. But it's not. 
you know, really, it's just another fun little story from ancient Mecca. Well, fun in the sense that uh, it's fun to read or fun to tell. It wouldn't be very fun if uh, Gabriel was pointing at one of your body parts there. All right. Next story. This is called Yas. That's the name here. I-Y-A-S. Yas. A young sage with old fools. There was a foreign tribe. It was Arabic, but not Quraysh. And this tribe came to Mecca, seeking an alliance against another tribe. Now, Muhammad heard that these people were in town, so he met with them, asking if they would be interested in gaining something far greater than what they had actually come for. Now, Muhammad, as he would do, he told them about the one God, about the falsity of other gods, and that he, Muhammad, was a prophet sent by God with a holy book, and he then recited the Quran for them. Now, among this delegation was a young boy named Iyas. He had no position of authority. He was just a younger boy who had come with his older and supposedly wiser family members. But upon hearing the Quran, he instantly spoke up. He said, by God, that is something far better than what we came for. Now, the youthful enthusiasm of Iyas was not really shared by his tribal elders. You know, they came here for military help. So Iyas's chief took some dirt from the ground and he threw it in Iyas's face, telling him to shut up. We didn't come here for this nonsense. So Iyas became silent and the delegation soon left Mecca, you know, with nothing. Iyas was the only one who left with something valuable. Now, soon there was a battle between Iyas's tribe and the enemy tribe. Now, these tribes were the Aus and the Khazraj of Medina. You know, this is the Medinan civil war that Muhammad partially would come to Medina to stop. These were the two big warring tribes. Now, this battle in this Medinan civil war was called the Battle of Buath. And it was just a god-awful bloodbath which would cause Yathrib to consider Muhammad as a mediator in Medina later. Now, in this battle, Iyas died, and he reportedly was praising Allah until the moment he died. And he had died a Muslim, probably the only one in that entire battle who had died a Muslim. So, according to Muslims, Iyas would see paradise. You know, meaning, again, he was the only one who left that meeting with more than he had come with. He was a young sage amid aging fools. That's a, it's a wonderful little story, isn't it? it? It has an almost biblical quality to it, you know, sort of, a, you know, the purity of David versus the age and arrogance of Saul type of thing. This next one takes place in Medina, actually, but it's just before Muhammad got there. So this one is called The Idol in the Cesspool. So in Medina, 
shortly before Muhammad got there, and the Muslims were becoming more numerous in Medina, there was an old chief named Abur Ibnul Jamu. He was a tribal leader with a prestigious title, and he had set up a wood idol in his house named Manat. Now, Manat in this area was the goddess of fate. And this person took very, very good care of this idol, cleaning it and obsessing over it, taking great pride in what you could call a creation, but what he would call a god. Now, one day, a group of young men, including Manat's son, they took it in the night and tossed it into a cesspool, face down. Now, for those who don't know, a cesspool is basically a place where excrement is collected. So this is exceptionally undignified for a god. I could not think of anything more dignified, undignified to do to an idol. They threw it in a pile of, sh you know, I can't say the word, you know what it is. Uh, there was, I'd actually have to label this podcast explicit. You know, just take two fingers, hold the end of your tongue and say, you know, it was thrown on a pirate ship. So in the morning, the old man notices, hey, my idol is missing. And he goes looking for it. And when he finds it, it is face down in the community latrine. So this is his God. <laughs> you know, so he has to get it out. And he does. There's no word on how he did it exactly, but he gets it out. He cleans it, and then he rubs perfume all over it. And I suppose that's another great element to this prank. It's not a stone idol. It's wood. So I think it might absorb some stench, and it may be hard to get it out. It might be permanent. Thus, you know, the perfume that he put all over it. So this guy, he put the idol back where it belonged. But the same thing happened the next night, and then the next night. And so this was a daily pattern. So he was getting tired of this. The man, his solution to this is great. The man decided to arm his wooden god, to give him a weapon. Literally, he tied a sword to the idol, telling it to defend itself. Seriously. Now, as the Muslims expected, that didn't stop the daily prank. That didn't stop anyone. The boys came once again, they removed the sword, tied a dead dog to the idol, and then threw it into the cesspool. Now, I believe this is about as provocative as you can get in Arabia. You know, as I understand it, dogs in this culture were like cockroaches in our culture. Might still be. So now the idol was suffering a double whammy of shame, laying face down in a pile of, you know, and on top of that, tied to a dog, and a dead dog at that. And this sheer level of uncleanliness, this cartoonish level of shame brought upon that wooden god, this finally sparked an epiphany in the old man. At this point, he started to understand the powerlessness of this idol, and he sought out some Muslims. He soon converted. And in the end, he was extremely grateful to those pranksters for showing him the right way.
This next story is about a man named Al Tufail bin Amr al Dawsi. We'll just call him Al Tufail. Either toward the end of the boycott or after the end of it, a man named Al Tufail came to the Kaaba. This would be a good time to explain that even if this was during the boycott, Mecca was still open to everyone during any of the several holy months each year. At those times, Muhammad could still enter Mecca proper and have little to fear. But slandering someone wasn't against the rules. So whenever Muhammad was at the Kaaba, the Quraysh would badmouth him to anyone from out of town. You know, they, they couldn't kill him. They couldn't hurt him. You know, those are just the rules during this time. But they could insult him. It, it was almost a prophylactic measure, you know, a preventative measure to make sure that before anyone heard Muhammad speak, that he was instantly labeled as a crazy or a subversive. So a guy walks into the Kaaba. <laughs> I wonder if any Muslim jokes start that way. You know, a guy walks into the Kaaba or an imam, a priest and a rabbi walk into the Kaaba. Anyway, for real, a guy walks into the Kaaba. He is Al Tafail bin Amr al Dusi, as I mentioned before, a well respected poet among his people. Well, they actually had to respect his poetry because he was the head of a tribe in a place called Daus. The Quraysh immediately descended upon him, telling them what a rotten guy Muhammad was, how he had divided their community, and that he was some kind of a sorcerer. Don't listen to him, they said. And Al Tafail, Heeded this warning very seriously. He actually stuffed cotton in his ears just to be safe, to make sure he wouldn't hear anything Muhammad may have said anywhere. But still, he was curious, and he became filled with what Christians might call the Holy Spirit. So he sought out Muhammad at his house. He told him everything that he had been told, you know, and he listened to the Quran. He listened to Muhammad recite the Quran tended to be a pretty powerful thing. You know, so at when this happened, Al-Tufail converted, and then he left to convert his people. But his success was limited there. His people resisted. So Al-Tufail came back later. He came back to Muhammad and asked him to curse his people or to have God curse his people. Now, by this point, Muhammad probably knew how to recognize an overzealous convert. <laughs> so he urged Al-Tufail to be patient with his people, to preach to them gently. He eventually won enough converts that he was able to field some fighters for Muhammad after he had settled in Medina. And of course, uh, this person's tribe would convert eventually, along with the rest of the peninsula. It wasn't an immediate and overwhelming success, but to win over at least one influential person outside of Mecca, it had to be a real boost to Islamic morale, or to Muhammad's morale at the time. So one last story. Uh, this one is called Muhammad Converts 20 Christians. In this story... 
the Christians that are converted are sometimes said to be from Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia. It's across the Red Sea in East Africa. But more often, they're said to be from Najran, which is to the south near Yemen. Actually, in modern times, it's right on the border between Saudi Arabia and Yemen, but still in Saudi Arabia. Nijran was the first Christian community in southern Arabia, converting about a hundred years before Muhammad's ministry. The Christian community actually had deep enough roots there. You know, not all Christians in the community would follow Islam immediately. Now, of course, it's a Muslim city now, and a full, fully Muslim one being in Saudi Arabia, because all of the Christians were actually kicked out in what was basically a religious cleansing of the Arabian Peninsula under the Caliph Umar. And even before that, there was a famous story of a Najrani delegation that went to see Muhammad around the year 631, and some heated words were exchanged, but Najran became both Muslim-aligned and Christian. Now, for anyone listening who is interested in the early history of Christian-Muslim relations, you know, say the last few years of Muhammad's life, all the way through the rightly guided caliphs, one thing to really keep in mind is that as Muslim power increased, and as the years went by, Muslim tolerance for Orthodox Christianity gets smaller and smaller and smaller, at least in the Arabian Peninsula. When the Muslim empire was later centered further north, you know, which is where there were many more Christians, it was a different story. You know, when Baghdad was the capital, for example. Anyway, you know, back to the 20 Christians here. The point is Muhammad got 20 Christian converts. And that is huge. And it really got him some monotheistic street cred, so to speak, you know, because this wasn't a group of mindless pagans. These were Christians. And what was it that enchanted these 20 Christians so much? What caused this conversion? Well, it was a verse about Christians from Surah 5, verses 82 and 83. Um, one that was pro-Christian, but interestingly enough, anti-Jewish. Now keep in mind at the time of this Surah, Jewish-Muslim relations were absolutely frosty. I mean, freezing cold. So if the Anti-Defamation League is listening, these are not my words. This is the Quran. Thou wilt find the most vehement of mankind in hostility to those who believe, meaning Muslims, to be the Jews and the idolaters. And thou wilt find the nearest of them in affection to those who believe, meaning Muslims, to be those who say, Lo, we are Christians. That is because there are among them priests and monks, and because they are not proud. When they listen to that which hath been revealed unto the messengers, you see their eyes overflow with tears because of their recognition of the truth. They say, our Lord, we believe. Inscribe us among the witnesses. Now, that seems like a nice little story. Um, but there is a gigantic problem with that. 
Sora 5 is considered one of the latest, if not the latest, of the Soras in the Quran. So you see the problem here. You know, not all of these stories are entirely believable because if that Sora was, was reeled in, what, 632, but this story appears to take place in Mecca around 619 to 622, then it's obviously impossible that this group of people were overwhelmed by a Sora that would not exist for at least 10 years. Maybe the early historians just used the wrong verse? And that leads us to a few likely scenarios. And again, given the uh, sort of questionable nature of this story, is usually the, the ones that I'm putting in the notebook. You know, that wouldn't be super credible in the official Islamic history. So it is fun, though, to see, you know, what went wrong here. Why is there this discrepancy? It's not necessarily because it didn't happen. It could have been just some kind of mistake in the chain of history. So like I said, that leads us to a few likely scenarios here regarding this story. Now, either those verses were, were actually revealed at least 10 years earlier than many of the ones around them, which isn't impossible either. You know, it, it happens. Many surahs are a hodgepodge of differently timed revelations. Or the story is a complete fiction. Or yet another possibility, the verses were misattributed to this particular story at some point in the historical chain. Now, I wish I could help you figure it out, but I don't know. Nobody knows. I mean, really, that, that's just true of so much of history. And if it isn't true, you know, I apologize. But again, this is the notebook. And I just thought it would be a story that would be relevant to this audience, uh, particularly the presence of Najran in Southern Arabia at the time. Again, just a fun little story that I think you should probably know. So that's it. Uh, all that said, that wraps the history of Islam before the Islamic year of zero. Uh, the Hijra, 622 AD. We can close the book on that whole chapter of history, as far as we're concerned, sort of. And honestly, everything we've done until this point, this era, this is my favorite part of Islamic history, by far. Pre-Hijra Islamic history, it's kind of like the very first Star Wars movie, you know, way back in 1977. Now, I wasn't even alive then, but as I understand it, it was an almost revolutionary movie at the time. So there was certainly going to be a follow-up, and it was pretty good. But every single episode after that just got further and further from the original and could never really satisfy like the original did. So, in Islamic history, this wraps up the first movie. From this point on, things are going to get more complicated. People will get promoted. There will be some surprising plot twists. Some villains die, and other people convert. The morality gets way more complex, for sure. But the purity of the original, that's over. It's done. Like with Star Wars, there is a sense of excitement moving on, but again, just don't expect to feel the same way. It'll just never be quite 
like I said, quite as pure, quite as good. So I hope everything I did up to this point gave you a real good idea of what happened and what Muhammad was like before he was a political figure and a military leader and so on. Because what happens after this is just a very, very different type of thing. You know, it's a prophet's going to look very different as a political figure and as a military leader, as, as this, um, a worldly leader, you could say. And that's what's in the future. So we will get to that very soon. So thank you. And I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.